Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Matthew 16. This is the last one in our series of How Big Is Your Faith? We've been tackling Matthew's stories about Jesus saying that his disciples have little faith, thus the phrase, oh, you of little faith. Have you ever had little faith? I, don't, I, I would be shocked if there, every one of us in here haven't had times of little faith. Small trusts, meager confidences, weak beliefs. Too often, I think, we find ourselves among them. Times that you wish when it turned out way better than you thought that you would have wished you had a stronger faith believing that God could do all those things. We've discovered in this little four-week journey that we can recognize little faith by its markers And those markers, according to Jesus, Matthew 6, are anxieties. They also, little faith also comes packaged in fears and doubts during storms. We saw in two different occasions in chapter 8 and chapter 14. What you might not realize that the phrase in English, oh, you of little faith, is really only one Greek word in the New Testament. It's a compound word meaning exactly what you see. Little faith, just two words put together to make one. Um, It's uh, something that all of us struggle with. And the reason we struggle with it is because we've learned that, first off, we don't see God for who he really is. And it looks like this. Sometimes we wonder if God sees us. And Jesus says, all the time we wonder if God sees us when... We are surrounded by millions of birds, sparrows to be exact, that he knows and sees every one of them. Even when they fall to the ground, he never misses one of them. We doubt whether he will take care of us, yet we're surrounded by flowers, Jesus said, that are arrayed like kings, namely Solomon. We, we question whether God will provide for us. And when we are surrounded by the whole animal kingdom world that God takes care of and feeds by the millions every single day. It's almost like, I don't know if you remember and read in your your English literature courses, Scarlet Letter, but you remember Hester Prynne who committed adultery and was known for that, had to wear an A on her clothes in public. It's almost like as you read this gospel that the disciples are becoming known for their little faith because, remember we said, there are pictures of great faith in Matthew's gospel, and it's by Roman centurions, it's by Gentile women, but every single time the, little, the phrase, oh, you have little faith, it's always of his disciples. It's almost like it's what they become known for. They don't wear an A on their clothes. It's a little LF, little faith, it's because they're known for it. I mean, it's almost like you say little faith, you think of, this group of disciples. And it's strange, really, when you think about it, because they are standing in the presence of Jesus every day. They live with him. They hear him. They see all that he does. But yet, seemingly, the impact is little. And at the same time, therefore, her, their faith is little. We have LF on our clothes, don't we? And the reason is way too often unneeded. It's unneeded anxiety, unneeded fear, unneeded doubt, I would guess, if you would think through the prayer list that we just talked about tonight, that there would be people who are having surgery, 
have had surgery, need surgery, people who are on radiation and chemotherapy and are really struggling relationally in their family and on and on it goes, I would tell you that we all face anxiety and fears about the outcome, what's going to take place, doubting whether it's going to really, if God can really do what I'm asking him to do. We would be really crazy to think that not every one of us in here, no matter who we are, don't struggle with little faith to some degree or another, whether it's for something personal or the people that we love or even just people that we know. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in England for many years in the 1800s and in the early 1900s. In one of his sermons when he was talking about Peter who walked on the water and then lost his faith a little bit and sank, he said this, That is always the trouble with weak faith. It comes back again to question what has already been solved and answered. In other words, he should have known he wouldn't have to fear anymore. He should never have sank. Why? Because he'd walked on water with Jesus. But he did. And and, and that's how fast little faith can happen, isn't it? I mean, things are going well. And and you've you've made some progress and a stride in your faith. And then it doesn't take much. Even at the same time, you start to sink and your faith seemingly evaporates. And, and then the Bible says that too often we don't leave our struggles of fear and anxiety and doubt in the boat. We keep taking it with us. I noticed, and I, in my study this week, after you read the same passages over and over again, you think you've thought all of the things you can think about them, but I didn't. You know what I found this week? That on three out of the five occasions, the first and the last one being the exemptions, that every time he can I say, condemns the disciples for their little faith, it always includes questioning. He always asks their questions. Have you noticed that? Can you tell me the word that is almost in every one of the lines where he talks about their little faith? What's the question? Yes, it's why, right? Why did you doubt? Oh, you have little faith? Why did you doubt? Why did you not believe? And the Lord questioned, now, can I tell you this? Read the Bible from the beginning to end, especially in the book of Genesis and in Jesus' parable, all those things about Jesus in the Gospels. When God directly talks to people, no matter what they've done wrong, no matter what the degree of what they've done wrong, he almost always asks questions. He doesn't indict people, even though he already knows they're guilty. And by the way, I would tell you that is a great thing to follow, right? In your marriage, when you're upset and someone has hurt your feelings, in church, when the same thing has happened or any relationship, let me tell you this, and you're going to have a conversation with them. Don't start with indictments. You did that. Ask questions. Ask questions. Why did you do that? Get their perspective. Get their understanding. Here's what Jesus does. Why? Remember when God brought Adam and Eve? What does he say to them? Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Why did you do Why? He's asking them questions. He did it of Cain. Cain, where am I my brother's keeper? Why? Because when God asks questions, listen to this, he's not looking for information. He's looking for transformation. God already knows the answers. He doesn't ask questions for his benefit. He asks questions for yours. He's not asking questions so that you can see his heart. He's asking questions so that you can begin to see yours, see? 
So you know why he says why, why, why every time they exhibit little faith? Because he's probing. He keeps wanting to teach his Talmud as a rabbi. He wants to teach them this. Look inside. Look at the cause, the root problem that you have. Why do you keep doubting me? And tonight's text gives us an answer for the disciples and for all of us. And it's one that I would think that perhaps you haven't thought much about. And it's in our text. Little faith, I'm going to tell you tonight, often stems from our inability to see spiritual realities as we should. All right? Let me say it again. Little faith often stems from our inability to see spiritual realities as we should. Let me give you the, the uh, framework of all of Matthew 16. Can you look at it with me? Verses 1 through 4, I'm going to write down, if you take notes, I put it in my Bible, active belief. I'm, I'm sorry, active unbelief. This is the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have active unbelief. They are pursuing Jesus because they've already rejected him. They don't believe. Now watch. Our passage, verses 5 through 12, is about passive unbelief. That they really believe in Jesus, they love him, they follow him, he's their Lord, but yet they still don't believe. It's not actively rejecting Jesus like the first paragraph. It's passive because they just don't know him for who he really is altogether yet, and they don't trust him. And then, not surprising, if you put it all together in your mind and you read it, the very next text, beginning in verse 13, is the one that we are familiar with in this chapter. Not the first two. The first two we're not familiar with. But this one is, and Jesus is at Caesarea, right? And Dave and I went there. I I, I suppose you did on your Israel trip, right? Caesarea Philippi? Yep. And and Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Now, why do these stories all go in a row? Because here's the key. Nobody in this text knows who he really is. The leaders don't know who he is, and he's going to really rebuke them for it. The disciples who follow him, they don't really know who he is. Do you remember last Wednesday night when we talked about the storm in chapter 14? And they got to the end of the storm and they were so amazed that when Jesus got in the boat with Peter, everything was calm. And here is their summary of what they learned about Jesus. Truly you are the son of God. But did you know that that's how the book ends? It's not just something they came to know. Listen, a Gentile Roman centurion standing by the cross, Matthew 27, 51, looks at Jesus dying. He did not, listen, watch, listen to this. They are seeing him do something miraculous. Walk on water, the boat, he gets in the boat, everything stops. They might come, yeah, you'd come to that conclusion too. But you're watching Jesus on a cross, naked, in public, shame. All the worst things in the possible. He's dying in weakness. This Gentile Roman centurion looks at the cross and makes the same astute comment about who Jesus is. He says, truly this was the Son of God. How is that possible? Because one isn't a a statement of great faith, but the other one is. The Roman centurion was, see. And you look at these stories, and you're going to find out you got... Active unbelief, passive unbelief. And then the next story is for you to decide. Who do you really say he is? And people say all kinds. He's one of the prophets. 
He's Elijah. He's John the baptizer. Herod thought Jesus was John the baptizer come from the dead. And then he asked them, who do you think I am? And can I tell you tonight, that's the question you need to ask. That's the question you, when your faith is weak and it's little, that's the question you always need to ask. Who is my Savior? Who is Jesus? Who is he really? How do I get the concept of who Jesus is into my storms, into my difficulties, into my hospital visits and and my surgeries and the uncertainty of the length of my life? How do I bring that truth to be real in my life? It doesn't happen, let me tell you, and this is the hard part, it doesn't happen if you wait for the event to occur. If you wait for the storm, if you wait for the cancer, if you wait for the sickness, if you don't know who he is and live who he is up until then, you won't hardly be able to when the event turns on, takes place. But if you do all the way along, if you're living out who he is every day in small ways and great ways, it'll be a different story. Let me show you how you can know that spiritual reality in your life. Verses 1 through 4. Look real quick. Why is verse 1 strange? Tell me the strange, the really, really strange thing about verse 1. Sandy. You are blessed. You are exactly right. Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't go together. They believe the opposite. They want the opposite. The Sadducees didn't even believe in a Messiah that was coming. So what are they doing together? Well, they're they're together because they both dislike Jesus. That's why they're together, and that's why they're testing him. And this must be severe unbelief if these two would coordinate with one another. That's how far they're going to go. Jesus says, when they ask for a sign from heaven, which is ridiculous because we are more than halfway through this gospel, and they have seen plenty of them. They do not ask for signs because of faith. They ask out of unbelief. They want Jesus to perform. He does not, and if you read the Gospels, you need to know this. He does not do miracles just for the sake of doing miracles. No, they are demonstrations of who he is. Every one of them. It shows all the different things and the authority and power that he has. He will not answer them. He will not give them a sign, not at all. And Jesus says to them, you are, the reason you do is because, verse 4, you're an evil and adulterous generation. Mark in your Bible right next to this little phrase. Look at Matthew 12, 38 through 41, and you'll know that Jesus said these exact same words on a second occasion. They are evil and adulterous generation. I'm only going to give you the sign of Jonah. He says it more than once, and most likely he said it more times than that. Because he wants you to know that when you're seeking signs, you're not seeking him. And so he says to them, here's why I'm condemning you. Ready? This is our principle. He answered them, verse 2, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. So Jesus says, you know how to tell when a storm's coming, and you know how to read the sky, don't you? In fact, the word appearance is actually the word face. You can see the face of the sky, and based on what's going on up there, you can tell. He says, you can do all that. Now watch. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Listen, let me tell you what that means. You can look at the sky 
and you've invested enough to know that I, can, I better be wary today because it's really going to rain, it's really going to storm, i got to be prepared for that. So I know how to do that. I, put t- I understand how that works. I can see the meaning behind the color in the skies. But Jesus says, you can't understand the meaning eschatologically or spiritually when I'm standing right in front of you doing miraculous things. All you can do is ask for another sign because you can't see who I really am. Have you ever wondered this? Come on, you have to have wondered this. I have. When I was a kid, I wondered this. You ever wondered how they saw all the miraculous things in Egypt, all the plagues and all the things, and they walked through the Red Sea, and they're not hardly any into the desert, and they start griping and blaming them, and God, I don't know what he can do. Are you serious? How have you watched everything God just did, and you're not even three weeks out in the desert, and you're griping, complaining, and you want to go back to Egypt? Duh, what's wrong? Right? How do they do it? Have you ever read other stories? Read the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus says, And there arose a generation of pharaohs who did not know Joseph. In other words, they didn't know the stories anymore. They didn't know how Joseph preserved all of Egypt and all the great things he had done. Did you ever read the first two chapters of Judges? It says that when they got there, that Joshua had died off and all of his generation And there arose a generation who didn't know all the things that Moses did. You see the repeated story? They didn't know the stories anymore. They stopped. Now, did they know God? Oh, yeah. But did they know him? No. They didn't know him. See, the Sadducees and Pharisees, did they meticulously know the Bible? Pharisees did. Did they know God in that sense? Yes. Did they know him? Not at all. And Jesus says, I'm staring you right in the face. You're watching all the things I do. You can't even figure out it's who I am. You can figure out the sky and the weather, but the most important thing in all the world that you study, you don't get it. You don't get it. You know how to interpret the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the Messiah. Here's what John, listen listen to Matthew, what he's saying. You can look at things that are physical and you get it but you don't look at the spiritual and get anything. What happens in your life and mine when we can look at economy in American culture, we can look at the ebbs and flows of finances on Wall Street, and we can figure out when to invest and when to spend and when not to do that, but we can't figure out what's truly valuable in life. Is that crazy? That you could have all this money in the bank, but you don't even know yet what money is for. What does it take? Isn't it crazy that we can figure out for us and our children, this is what it takes to have career success. You have to make these grades in high school, and then you have to get this so that you can get to this special high school, and then you have to get a scholarship so you can get to college, and you have to, not just any college, you got to go to this college, and you got to get these grades, and you got to get all this stuff, and then when you get, you have to get your master's degree and perhaps even your doctorate, and then you'll really be on your way. See, we've got it mapped out. Isn't it crazy that we know, we know how to be a success physically in our career, But sometimes we don't know the first thing about being spiritual success. In fact, we're okay with raising our children that way. That they could be great in the world and sacrifice everything to get this degree, but we won't sacrifice anything for them to be success spiritually. That goes by the wayside. If we have to make a choice, 
God slides over and the career takes the place. Why? Because we're just like that. It's passive unbelief. It's passive unbelief. What is, wh- why is it that we can know how the kingdom of America works? I mean, the intricacies of what it takes to get along in this country. But we don't know how the kingdom of heaven works. We look at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount as if they go in one ear and out the other because they are not relevant to what it takes to get along in our world today. We prepare for our retirement. We gauge everything. We put money in the bank. We have 401ks. We have Social Security. and we, be- we have it all planned out. But do we have the last 20 years of our life planned out and how we're going to serve God as we get older? I'm almost 60. I'm planning on it. <laughs> I'm not going to live very high on the hog financially, but I will not waste my years. That, by God's grace, I guarantee you. What about us? We've prepared for retirement, but are we preparing for eternity? We know, we know when our kids' grades are slipping. We know. Got a progress report. We are on it. We are sitting down late at night, watching them, helping them do their stuff. We know when their grades are slipping and it's going downhill, but we can't figure out when their spiritual life is going in the toilet. We can't. So we can see this, but we can't see this. We can see when our job is going really well at work, but we can't see when our marriage is not. How is it? Because we have the problem that they had. And you know what it was? They were blinded by, listen, they were blinded by their own personal self-interest and their own needs. See, when it came to the second passage, verses 5 through 12, they get off the boat, they met Jesus on the other side, and they start telling themselves, and the word is dialoguing. They're going back and forth, talking to each other. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they go, oh my word, we forgot the bread on the other side. You see how ridiculous this is? They, they had the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, and they left the loaves of bread in some baskets. They forgot to bring it. It was their job. And they think Jesus is upbraiding them because now they don't have lunch. Do you see how, isn't it ridiculous? Jesus is talking about the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it's like yeast. You put a little in there, and it spreads until everything is affected by it. He goes, beware. He marks the passage off in verses 6 and 11. It's a little bracket. Beware, beware. Same phrase. And everything is in between why you should be aware. But the whole time, Jesus is using a metaphor to give them a spiritual lesson about false teaching, all they can think about is whether Jesus is really going to be mad because we don't have anything for lunch. How It's a joke, isn't it? Is it, though? Is it? We have, we're really good at thinking of all those things. And we think that Jesus might be really upset with us because we didn't find and give our kids this kind of education or we didn't do this and we don't have this for them and they don't get to drive half. And in our life, we don't have this vacation Are we kidding? Do you really think Jesus cares about those things? He doesn't. I know, because he told us he doesn't. He says all those things are what the Gentiles seek. They're fine and they're good, but they're not what his kingdom is about. Do your kids know that? Do they know really what matters most? 
because the reason they may not is because our faith is so little. He says, beware of those things. How will you interpret it? Let me give you a little bit of hope. Watch Peter throughout Matthew and the rest of the disciples, and you'll find that there's little progress, little faith, little faith, little faith, little faith, and then they start to begin to understand. But you know when they really start to understand? After they are given the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. You know why? Read 1 Corinthians 2 for yourself sometimes. One of the marks of someone who's not really a believer is they can't understand what the Bible is teaching and what the, and here's the, Paul's phrase, the deep things of God, they can't get it. You know why? Because they don't have his spirit living in them, so they can't get it. Have you ever talked to someone and you're trying to reason with them? I have as a pastor many times. Can't you see this? You think this is the issue in your marriage. It is not. This is it. But you're not interested in that because this is about your self-interest. This is what you want. But this is the problem. So you keep having the same thing over and over again, and you keep duplicating the problem because all you ever deal with is the fruit of it. You don't see the spiritual reality of it, and it keeps happening over and over and over. And that's why our faith is so little, because it's built on us, who we are, instead of built on who he is in our lives. Peter finally gets that. He finally gets that. He gets that Jesus doesn't want me to defend him with a sword. He gets it. He doesn't have to attack anybody anymore. He gets it. He finally figures out, after all the revelations, in this chapter, listen to this and I'll close. In this chapter, God the Father, Jesus says, reveals to Peter when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. My Father told you that. Now listen to this. And it isn't A few verses later, when Jesus tells him he has to go to Jerusalem to die, that literally in the Greek it says, Peter grabbed him by the shoulders and shook him. Can you imagine? Jesus, that'll never happen to you. Double negative. That'll never happen to you. I guarantee you, I will not let that happen to you. He just said, Jesus, you're the son of the living God, and he doesn't even know what it means. Next chapter, if you don't think that's enough, Matthew says, I want to show you. Go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, and you're going to see Jesus unveiled. You're going to see his clothes are like lightning. You're going to see his face shines. You can't even look at it. And you're going to see this, and you're going to come down from the mountain, and nothing has changed about your view and understanding of who he is. You know why? Because they never had to live it. All they did was talk about it. But after Acts starts, oh, now it's different. The Holy Spirit lives inside of them, and they understand now since he raised from the dead, they get who he is. And when they get who he is, they don't have little faith anymore. They have big faith. Let me tell you this. That's what you need. That's what I need. We need to know Jesus has died and rose again. He is alive. And all the things that he did for them, he can do for us. He can do that for our church. I tell all the time in our pastors and deacons meeting when finances might get a little tight and people get a little worried. We all do, don't we, a little bit? Rightfully so, perhaps, right? I always say this. Don't forget, we are Faith Baptist Church, (laughs) right? We are Faith Baptist Church. We serve a God who created everything last time I looked, right? That's who we are. Let's believe that, right? Let's live that. Let's not have little faith, right? Little faith, here's what I say, little faith, little God, 
Big faith, big God. We have the big God because we have the only God, right? Let's be Faith Baptist Church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. Help us. Too often, Master, our faith is small. Not because of you, never, never because of you. It's because we don't have a right view of you. We don't really understand what your story is and what it's all about, how we fit into it, how we get our kids to live in that story. Oh, Lord, we know all the things about the world, the physical things, the financial things. We know how to make it. We don't know the spiritual realities like we should. We don't practice them. We don't dwell on them. We don't push them and teach them and help our children to understand them like we should at times. Please help us. So much is at stake. Not just us, Lord, far more than that. For your name and your kingdom and your glory, help us to be together, Faith Baptist Church. For your honor and glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.